What we're going to be talking about this evening is the marks of identity that the true people of God bear. The, 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 the marks of Christian identity. We're intended to live out who we are. In the New Testament, we see this pattern very often of, um, you know, students of Scripture will call it indicative and imperative. Paul or someone else, but especially Paul, will, will say, this is who you are in Christ. This is who God has made you to be. Now, do something that is consistent with that, and he'll be specific with his charge. So, you are this, indicative. Now, go do that, imperative. We're intended to live out our identity because of who God has made us to be in Christ. We are supposed to be a certain way, to live a certain way, to be a certain kind of people. This is a concept that's very familiar to us. We, we all play various roles in life. We all have various identities. I have an identity as a husband. I have an identity as a father, as a worker in the job that I have. I have a, uh, an identification, a, uh, uh, an identity as a teacher, and I need to fulfill the, the, the functions of that identity and so forth. I'm a citizen and so I, certain things are expected of me as a result of these various roles. As I was watching, I'm a football fan. Uh, you don't need to be a football fan in order to get this illustration, but um, uh, I understand football is kind of a, an important part of the culture here, so <laughs> most of you will probably get it. Um, but speaking of pro football, and I won't apologize for it, I am a Pittsburgh Steelers fan um, because I grew up in Pennsylvania and... Um, uh, and that's, that's another identity, I guess. But uh, I was watching football this past season, and there was a, a, defense, a defensive player, a cornerback, who made a particularly boneheaded play, and, and the other team scored or had a big gain or whatever. And as he's coming off the field, <laughs> the coach grabs a hold, Mike Tomlin grabs a hold of him. And I could read his lips. You know, sometimes, especially with an HDTV, right, you can read the lips of the coach. Sometimes that's not a good thing either, but... Uh, in this case, I could see what he said. He said to the guy, he said, you are a cornerback in the National Football League. And then he said a few things that probably shouldn't be repeated. He was telling this guy, you are not living according to your identity. Your actions are not living up to who you are and the big fat paycheck that we're giving you. He, there were things expected of him, and he wasn't fulfilling that. We're going to look at Philippians 3.3 3 this evening. You could turn to Philippians chapter 3, where we see three marks of Christian identity. Three marks that identify the true people of God. And, and the approach that I'm taking here is that if we can answer the question, what is the church? What are the true people of God supposed to be like? Then we will gain insight into what the church's leadership should look like. If you were a board member of a, uh, of a company... Uh, say, a Fortune 100 company that manufactured high-tech electronic components. Maybe you were in the, you know, the Bay Area, San Francisco, or whatever. And uh, you needed a, a new CEO for your company. You would go and find somebody to run your company that had experience in probably at least in the tech industry, right? You wouldn't go to, uh, you know, up into the mountains and find a, a small business owner that had a little logging company and say, hey, would you come lead our multi-billion dollar high-tech company. You wouldn't do that. Why? Because he's not equipped 
for that. He, he doesn't know how to lead. He doesn't understand the identities and the functions of a company like that, and he's, he's not uh, prepared to do that. Got to know the nature of the business that he's in. Now, the church is certainly not a business, and a pastor is certainly not a CEO, but he is a leader. And even more importantly, he is one who is intended to lead by example. And so what we're going to see here tonight is not just the marks of Christian identity, the marks that, that, that are to be true of all of the true people of God. We are seeing, really distilled for us in this verse, key components of what the example is that a, 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 an elder, a pastor, is supposed to set. If the true people of God are supposed to be these three things, how much more so is an elder who is entrusted with the care of these souls to set this kind of example. So, of course, this, this message is not just for Cooper. It's, first of all, for all of the elders and, elder, and maybe elder candidates of, of this church. And it's also for everyone who names the name of Christ. So, in Philippians chapter 3, we're going to see these three marks of Christian identity in verse 3. Let's spend a moment to, to capture the context here, because the context is so important. You may realize that Philippians is often called the epistle of joy. It's, uh, uh, it's full of happiness. Paul is joyful about a lot of things. He loves the Philippian people. They have sacrificed much to take care of him. Uh, he rejoices in their, their generosity to him in, in chapter 1, and he reaffirms his commitment to, uh, to, to following Christ even all the way to death, if that's what it means. You know, to live is Christ, to die is gain, Paul says. And uh, uh, he, he exhorts them to be humble with one another in chapter 2, to, uh, to uh, consider each other more important than yourselves. He gives the example of Jesus Christ, who did not assert his own privileges as God, but humbled himself, emptied himself, humbled himself, took on the form of a servant, and obeyed all the way to death, and thus was exalted to the right hand of the Father. But then he gives two more examples. He gives the example of Timothy, how Timothy uh, is, is, ha- has served so faithfully, and Epaphroditus, who was the one that, that they sent with their gift uh, to Paul in prison to take care of him. Epaphroditus was sent and charged with the responsibility to, to help Paul, to provide for his needs, and to take care of him to the extent that it was possible. So these men serve as examples of the humility that Paul is talking about in Christ and that he's describing in the, in the early part of Philippians chapter 2. So that brings us to chapter 3, where Paul says, finally, and then you know he goes on to talk for two more, or write for two more chapters, but he says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Now watch what happens, verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. What has happened here? Suddenly the tone of the letter has changed dramatically. If you ignore all the verse and chapter divisions and you just read it like a letter, things are going really well here. Uh, Paul is happy. He's joyful. He's encouraged. He's been ministered to. He is exhorting them to keep doing what they're doing and to love one another and, and to be unified and humble with one another to follow the example of Christ. And suddenly, suddenly, the word beware in verse 3. It, it sometimes is translated look out as it is here in the ESV. But the, the word is really beware, look out. 
Hey, look up here and pay attention, he says. There's something that I need to warn you about. What is he warning them about? Well, he's warning them about the dogs. <laughs> um, now, he calls them three things. He calls them the dogs, the evildoers, and the mutilators. Uh, some, the, the translation usually opens that up a little bit, but it's really just one word. Mutilators. What in the world is going on here? Is, there, is like Jack the Ripper on the loose in, in Asia Minor? What's going on? Well, someone had, or a group of people, were beginning to infiltrate the churches behind Paul. We call them Judaizers. People that were saying that faith in Christ is not enough. You also have to become a Jew. Like in the Old Testament, in order to become a part of the worshiping community, you had to come in through the nation of Israel. And they're saying, well, that hasn't changed. You need to believe in Jesus because he is the Messiah. But you also have to become a Jew. You have to follow the way of circumcision. Which is why he uses the word circumcision in the next verse. The one that we're going to look at. But he says, beware of these people. They, and he calls them dogs. That was a serious insult. That was very gra- uh, stark language. You don't, you don't call somebody a dog in this culture. In our culture, you know, we have cute little dogs, right? Uh, the, uh, Cooper and Brooke have a cute little dog. And it's fun. <laughs> jumps up in your lap. And I was at the Kohler's house this afternoon. A cute little bear. You know, I don't know what kind of dog it is. I didn't ask, but it's... <laughs> Cute little guy jumped up on the sofa next to me and made friends. That's not the kind of dog Paul is talking about. Back then, dogs were not pets. They were scavengers. They were dirty. They were, in some cases, vicious. They were to be avoided. He is warning them about these people. The way that you would avoid these dangerous, scavenging, dirty, disease-carrying animals, avoid these false teachers. Stay away from them. They're bad news. They've corrupted the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's what he's warning them about. And when he says, look out, the last phrase, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, or look out for the mutilators, he's using a Greek word that sounds like the word for circumcision, which is the word that he uses in the next phrase. For we are the circumcision. So it's a word play in Greek. It doesn't work well in in English. It's the, those who are teaching that you still have to follow the way of circumcision in the old te- that, that we uh, read about in the Old Testament, they're the mutilators, demanding circumcision and, and, and following the law that goes with it. They are mutilating not just people's bodies, but people's faith and the gospel. And now that brings us to verse 3. Beware of these false teachers, for we, not the Judaizers, are the true circumcision. Now, he's using that there, as I said, as a kind of a, a rhyming wordplay to, um, to convey the idea that we are the true people of God. He's not affirming the fact that we have to follow the way of circumcision. He's saying the opposite. He's saying we are the true covenant people of God. And now he's going to say this is what the true covenant people of God look like. So that's what sets us up. Now, Verse 3, for we are the circumcision, those who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. There you are. 
a seminary student's dream. The outline is right there in the verse, one, two, three. We are the true circumcision. Now, before we look at the first mark of identity, worshipers, let's notice, first of all, that Paul says, we are the circumcision. We'll paraphrase that by saying, for we, emphasis on we, we, not the Judaizers, are the true people of God. Paul is affirming, this is so important for this day that we live in. Paul is affirming that there is a difference. There is a difference between those who are not the true people of God and those who are. Now, this is not a basis for pride, and that's a, that's a great emphasis in everything that follows. But he's saying, you've got to realize there is a difference between the true people of God and the pretenders. It's an infinite difference. And those whom he's calling the circumcision are the true covenant people of God who stand under God's promises in contrast to the mutilators, those who added to the gospel, those who demanded more of people than faith in Jesus Christ in order to be named as the true people of God. And it makes me, it it reminds me that we, and especially Cooper, you as a pastor, must remember that you've got to engage in your task as a leader of the true redeemed people of God as, a, as an identifiable people that God has called out, has set apart unto himself. Paul, Paul uses the language of holiness so often. Saints, people who are set apart unto God. The precious people of God. The trend nowadays, especially as churches get bigger and bigger, the trend is to see... Uh, uh, is to, to, to blur the distinction between those who are true believers and those who are not. We've talked about that both between me and Cooper and, and with Shane some today. People want to blur the distinction. We just want everybody to be welcome. We want everybody to come in. We're not going to worry about those who are in and those who are out. We don't want to be exclusive. We want everybody to be welcome and to feel loved and, and to feel like they belong. Well, there's truth there, and there's error there. Our worship services, when the people of God gather, that is to be a gathering of the true people of God. When we come together, we identify ourselves as the worshipers of God that we're about to see in the three marks of Christian identity. Of course, we want unbelievers to come. We want people who don't know Jesus yet to come into our gatherings. They are welcome. But when they come to the assembly of the believers, we want them to see that they do not yet belong. And that we want so badly for them to come and genuinely belong. And so we give them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we tell them who Jesus is and we model that according to these three marks of identity that we're about to see. So, the first... uh, the introductory point that Paul makes is that there is a, an infinite distinction between the true people of God and those who are not. So let's look at the three marks of Christian identity. Cooper and other elders here, this is a description of who we are to be as shepherds of God's people. The first mark of Christian identity that Paul identifies is that Christians the true covenant people of God, are those who worship by the Spirit of God. I might modify that slightly to say, those who worship in the Spirit of God. Those who worship in the Spirit of God. 
Now, uh, Shane kind of spilled the beans, you guys, that I'm especially interested in worship. And those who know that will say, yeah, Snyder's the worship guy. He's always going to be talking about worship. I would like to point out that I didn't write this verse. (laughs) I didn't choose to put worship first on the list. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, did that. When Paul, when Paul wants to identify the true people of God, the first thing that he talks about is not those who believe in Jesus Christ, those who preach the gospel, those who do biblical counseling, those who fill in the blank. He says the first mark of the true people of God is that they are worshipers. They're worshipers. I find that interesting. And I think that as pastors, we need to stop and take note of that. Paul doesn't say that the first mark of the people of God is that they preach. Of course we preach. He goes into great detail and and great emphasis with that in the pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus. But here when he's describing the true people of God, he says that they're worshipers. They worship in the spirit of God. You know, it's possible to preach sermons and not be a worshiper. It's possible to sit there and listen to good sermons and not be a worshiper. I was just uh, rereading The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer this week. As I was thinking about coming here and participating in this ordination, I thought, well, let's see. How could I kind of, you know, get in the zone for ordination? And I thought of A.W. Tozer. So I pulled The Pursuit of God off the shelf, and I wasn't ten pages into it, and this smacks me right in the face. Tozer said, speaking of this dynamic, that it's possible to be a preacher but not a worshiper. It's possible for people to listen to good sermons and not be worshipers. He said this, It is a solemn thing and no small scandal in the kingdom to see God's children starving while actually seated at the Father's table. You can be sitting at the table with the food in front of you of God's word presented to you and not partake. Be a hearer and not a doer. It's possible even to stand here in this place and explain the meaning of God's word, to cook the food and set the table, so to speak, and not take any of it into your own soul to nourish and grow. The true people of God are those who are worshipers. Now, what does Paul mean by worshipers? There's more than one word that can be translated as worship and more than one word that, uh, that is associated with the worship of God's people. Paul uses a word here <clears throat> that means to serve. And it's not serve in the slave sense. We all know, you know the word doulos, uh, talking about the, you know, a, a slave to another human being. This is more uh, the idea of serving like a priest, which is to worship God, right? The, the priests in the temple, in the Old Covenant, they were servants of God, and the Old Testament speaks of them that way. They would serve Yahweh, serve the Lord in the Old Testament. Paul uses that word here. We are worshipers. I like to use the term servant worshipers. It's not very poetic and it's not inspired, but it does convey the sense we are servant worshipers of God. We think of priests doing their duty. We are Uh, The Bible calls us a kingdom of priests unto the Lord. 
And the word is never used in the New Testament to speak of service that is given to another human being. The word always refers to service given to God. Paul characterizes himself in Romans 1 and 2 Timothy 1 as, the, as one who serves God or serves in the gospel of God. That was a, he sees that as a characteristic of his life. Worship as service. In fact, serving God in this sense involves not just going to church. It's very important to see that this, this idea of worshiping, invol- it encompasses the whole life of a person. The clearest place where we see that is in Romans 12.1, maybe the most famous verse in Romans, where Paul says, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercies that he has just described over the previous 11 chapters, in view of what God has done mercifully, that you present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God. Now, what was a, an offering? Uh, presenting an offering that was acceptable to God, that was holy and acceptable to God. What was that in the Old Testament? That was an act of worship, wasn't it? You bring an offering and you worship God. You receive forgiveness and you have fellowship with God as you offer this offering. So Paul says, present your bodies as a sacrifice that is still alive and holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship. And that word for act of worship is the same word that he uses here in Philippians 3.3. Those who worship in the Spirit of God. The two passages are exactly parallel by by the use of this word. So serving God, when Paul says those who are worshipers in the Spirit of God, here in Philippians 3, he's not talking about people who go to church faithfully every Sunday. Whenever the doors are open, I'm there. I'm a worshiper. Nope. Not necessarily. Those who who worship in the Spirit of God are those who are utterly devoted, minute by minute in their lives, to giving every one of those minutes to the service of the King to the service of God. That's what he means when he says, worshipers. Those who are worshipers in the Spirit of God are those who have done what Paul has taught, or in the process of doing what Paul talks about in Romans 12.1. Giving my life, minute by minute, hour by hour, every day, 24-7, as an act of worship to the true God. The first mark of identity of, of true believers is that they are worshipers. They're utterly devoted to the priestly service of God. This is nothing new in Scripture. You read Deuteronomy chapter 10. I'll read it. You don't have to turn there. And we see the same dynamic in Moses' exhortation to Israel. He says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God, which is the same, the Hebrew equivalent of this Greek word, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord. It was a a life-consuming relationship to be a worshiper of the true God. Now, Paul says that the true people of God are those who worship in the Spirit of God. What does that mean? What does it mean to worship in the Spirit? And how will I know if I'm worshiping? Well, I feel really spiritual right now. You know, I mean, the music is so... Great. And if, you know, and I just I have this great, it just feels so 
spiritual. Does that mean you're worshiping the Spirit of God? No, it could just mean that Darby's just doing a great job. <laughs> and he does, I can tell. Um, it could mean that you're worshiping the music. Um, I will resist the rabbit trail of talking about how we've decided that music equals worship. Um, that's a huge problem in the church, but we won't go there just now. What does it mean to worship in the Spirit of God? Well, in a sense, everything that we do is in the Spirit. You know, in, in Romans 8, Paul talks about uh, how we are, no, we are not in the flesh, but now in the Spirit because we belong to God. Um, and so, in a sense, everything that we do is in the Spirit because we are now spiritual people. Uh, sometimes we don't live according to that reality, right? We don't follow the imperative that flows from the indicative, but... Um, in a sense, everything we do is spiritual. I don't think this is exactly the same thing as what Jesus said to the uh, Samaritan woman at the well when he says the Father is seeking those who worship in spirit and truth. I don't think he's talking about the Holy Spirit there. He's talking about the spirit of, of, of the human, that, that true worship is not something you do in a particular geographical location like the temple in Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim in Samaria. But true worship is worship that is of the heart. I think that's what Jesus was talking about. This is probably an expansion on that. But a good way to understand what Paul is talking about here is to look at other places where he uses, uh, where Paul uses that phrase in the spirit. In Colossians 1.8, Paul says to the Colossian believers, I have heard about, because Epaphras has come back and reported to him, I have heard about your love in the spirit. They had a love for one another that was generated by the work of the Holy Spirit in their heart. Sort of like in Romans when Paul refers to the Spirit um, that has poured out the love of God. We have the love of God through the Spirit that He has poured out in our hearts. So there is, there is, it's possible to love in the Spirit. In Ephesians 6.18, after Paul has listed out the armor of God that God has provided for us to fight the spiritual battle that we face every day, he says, do put on all of these pieces of armor, and as you're doing it, be praying in the Spirit. Praying at all times in the Spirit. So the sense there is a sense of dependency on the Holy Spirit. I am praying in the Spirit to be shaped by Him, to be uh, successful in the battle that I'm fighting. There's that sense of dependency. 1 Corinthians 12.3 even talks about speaking in the Spirit, that someone who is speaking the truth of the Lordship of Jesus Christ is speaking in the Spirit. So when Paul envisions doing something in the Spirit, in the, in, in the sphere or under the influence of the Holy Spirit, he seems to be referring to our dependence on the Spirit and to what the Spirit produces in us as a result. So worshiping in the Spirit would refer to Worship that depends on the Spirit to produce in us what is pleasing to God. We are here to worship in the Spirit, not to worship in the music, necessarily, although we should be worshiping as we sing. This is something that the mutilation can't do, worship in the Spirit of God. So, a pastor, like the people that he leads, is one who is identifiable as a person who worships in the Spirit of God. 
Will people look at your life, Cooper, and other pastors here? Will people look at your life and say, he's a worshiper. I want to be like that. Come to think of it, how will people know? How will people know that you are worshiping in the Spirit of God? The easiest uh, way that I can think to, to explain that is to go to Galatians chapter 5. If the Spirit is active in a person's life, if a person is walking in the Spirit, living in the realm of the Spirit, what is that person's life going to look like? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If we are worshiping in the Spirit day by day, And when we gather on Sunday, the Spirit will be producing those things in our lives. We will look more like Christ as we manifest the fruit of the Spirit. That's worshiping in the Spirit of God. So, the first mark of Christian identity is that we, the true people of God, are those who live lives that are devoted as sacrifices given up on the altar to God as an act of worship. And everything we think about, this goes so beautifully with what Shane preached this morning from 1 Corinthians 3, that our whole worldview has changed. We see life now as an act of worship, something fundamentally different than the world around us. Worship that demonstrates and develops in us the fruit of a spirit-dependent, spirit-energized people. That's the example that you have to set, Coop. One who worships in the Spirit of God and leads others to do that. Let's look at the second mark of Christian identity. The second mark, Paul says... That Christians, the true circumcision, are those who glory in Christ Jesus. Simple little phrase. The ones who glory in Christ Jesus. Uh, Let's replace the word glory with the word boast. We don't typically use the word glory as a verb, do we? I uh, really gloried in the Steelers' win last Sunday. I I don't talk about it like that. So let's use a word that is more familiar. Brag. Boast. The true people of God are those who boast... In Christ Jesus, Jesus the Messiah. Well, boasting is a fascinating study in Paul. It would be great to just do a whole sermon on bragging, Christian bragging. It's a great study. There are a couple of places, like in Romans 5, where it means more like rejoicing, to rejoice, where Paul says, I rejoice in hope. We rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in God who has reconciled us to himself. Most of the time, the word that's used here in Philippians 3 just means to brag. It means to boast. Um, but Paul, it, it, we even touched on it this morning in 1 Corinthians 3.21, where Paul emphasizes you don't boast in mankind. You don't boast in, in man. And, and that's a theme for Paul. Uh, if you keep reading in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says in verse 7, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you brag as if you didn't receive it? As if you had somehow made it for yourself or earned it. Boasting in man is bad. In 2 Corinthians 10-12, to Paul's defending his apostleship 
And he stops a couple of times and says, listen, I know I'm bragging and it's stupid, but I have to do this in order to get the point across to you. Because boasting in himself is far from where he wants to be. Christians are not those who boast in themselves. So you follow the theme in Paul. He uses the word for boasting 35 times in his letters. Uh, 35 times. Outside of Paul's letters in the New Testament, the word is only used twice. So boasting is a big deal for Paul. Usually, he's talking about boasting in the Lord, boasting in Christ. Turn to 1 Corinthians 1 for just a moment. 1 Corinthians 1. Follow as I read the end of the chapter, starting in verse 20, well, 26. Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, because of God the Father, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that, why did Christ become these things for us? So that, verse 31, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And he refers to Jeremiah 9, 23, where the the Lord says, let let not the uh, rich man boast of his riches, the mighty man boast of his might, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises righteousness and justice on the earth, for in these things I delight. The one who boasts in God begins to look like him. The one who boasts in Christ Jesus begins to look like him, act like him, sound like him. Doing the things that the Lord delights in. So, boasting in God, boasting in Christ... That's where it's at for Paul. More specifically, in Galatians 6, Paul speaks of boasting of all things in the cross. Boasting in the cross of Jesus Christ. In Galatians 6, uh, starting in... uh, It's not 6.13. It's verse 14, sorry. In verse 14, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why would you boast in a cross? The cross was the instrument of torture and execution. Far be it from me that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul says, I can't find anything in the world or in myself to boast about. Because my attachment to the world, my attachment to myself, uh, to, to what I can accomplish in the flesh, has been broken by the cross. I have been crucified with Christ. And I will boast in His cross. Because it's in His cross that I have been crucified to the world. That I have been made new. I'll boast in that. 
And in the end, Paul turns boasting about himself into an opportunity to boast about Jesus. At the end of that passage that I mentioned in 2 Corinthians 10 to 12, in chapter 12, you remember Paul asked God, he begged God to take away this thorn in his flesh, whatever that was. It was something that was a source of of great frustration and misery to Paul. And he begged God to take it away. And God said to him, listen, my grace is enough for you. Because power is perfected in weakness. My power is going to be manifested in your weakness. So Paul said, okay, I get it. And he went so far as to say, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. Paul says, I'm going to boast. If I'm going to boast in myself, it's going to be about the weaknesses that I have. It's going to be in my failures because it is through my weakness that the power of Christ is made manifest. That's, that's what boasting in Christ looks like. Boasting in his cross Boasting in what he has done and boasting in how he has transformed a wretch like me. He says, the only parts of me that I can boast about are my weaknesses. Because it's in my weaknesses that people can see Jesus. One commentator on this passage said said this. He said, our boasting is not in ourselves, which is the essence of sin but in another whose arm alone has brought salvation and on whom we rest in utter confidence and self-distrust. It is an attitude which deflates pride, especially in our religious virtues and attainments, and exalts the sovereign grace of God and His matchless gift on which we have no claim. A pastor, like the people he leads, is one whose only boast is in Jesus Christ. So Cooper, you must be known as a shepherd of God's flock, as one whose only boast is in Jesus Christ. You're a humble guy. It's what you have to be. Someone who points people through the daily actions of life, not just the words that you speak, to the glories of Jesus Christ. Because that's what the true people of God are. We find nothing to boast about in ourselves and in this world except what Jesus is and has done. Lastly, the true people of God are those who worship in the Spirit of God, who boast in Christ Jesus, and those who put no confidence in the flesh. Now this one is very closely related to the previous characteristic of boasting in Christ. Because if I have nothing to boast about in my own self, then... That means I can put no confidence in any of my achievements. And he probably uses that word flesh, confidence in the flesh, to refer especially to religious accomplishments. Because remember, in the context, he's talking about circumcision and following the way of circumcision. So he's especially referring here to religious accomplishments, like going to church every week, like I was born and raised in the church, like... I'm involved in ministry and I say the right things and I put on the right appearance to everybody. He said, no, the true people of God are those who put no confidence 
in the flesh. One translation says, those who do not rely on human credentials. I like that translation. Those who do not rely on human credentials. Those who are consumed with what Jesus has done. Confidence in Paul is another interesting study. For Paul, when he talks about confidence, he's talking about things that, uh, about a sense of certainty that, that forms the basis for his actions. He's so confident in Christ and what Christ has done that he is going to do certain things and live a certain way. Like when he says to Timothy, I know the one in whom I've believed and I am confident, I'm convinced that he is able to guard my trust until the day that he's done with me. So for Paul here, he's talking about the true people of God as those who do not have any confidence in human credentials, in especially religious attainments. And he goes on in the context to list them. He says, listen, I was a really good religious Jew. And I had all sorts of reasons for confidence in the flesh. Circumcised the eighth day, verse 5, of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew child of Hebrew parents, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. In fact, it was refuse, rubbish for the sake of Christ. Now, when we read this, we rightly understand that, first of all, what Paul is talking about is, As a sinner, I come before the Lord and I have nothing of merit to offer Him. I have nothing good to offer God. As so many have said, I bring, uh, I contribute to my salvation nothing except the sin which makes it necessary. So Paul says, I have nothing before God to commend myself to Him. Not heredity, not personal morality, not zeal for the Bible, not attendance at a good church. None of that can earn favor with God. But as I think about a pastor, as I think about a church and how, how we embrace and apply this vital truth, I wonder if there are other ways that we put confidence in the flesh, even as God's people. Things like we have an excellent service. God is pleased with excellence. We have excellent music and excellent preaching and God is pleased with excellence, right? Right? And we have a welcoming atmosphere. People, people like coming here. We have, we, have, uh, we, have, we have good teaching. Well, all of these things are good with a certain mindset. But statements like this can be a theological smokescreen for your pride. And for the assumption that people are worshiping if they're enjoying themselves. Or that they're worshipers if they've signed the right doctrinal statement. Or if they're hearing good sermons. We can deceive ourselves into thinking that we have effective ministry if all the externals look right. We would all agree here in this context that that if your ministry is about entertaining unbelievers in order to get them in the room, right, to draw a big crowd, that that is unfaithful. That that's in a way prostituting the ministry of the gospel. But I have to tell you that we have to push that one step further. If your ministry is about entertaining believers, 
you're prostituting your ministry. As a pastor or as a church, you may be able to draw crowds by the eloquence of your preaching, by the reputation of your staff, by the charm of your personality. Maybe not you, but... (laughs) You may be... Sorry. You may be able to draw crowds and have people around you feeling good about being a part of this ministry. But if that's all you have, if you depend on those things, you are not acting like Christians. Because Christians, the true people of God, don't place their confidence in human credentials. So let's not deceive ourselves into thinking that as long as we have those external things, we are worshiping God. Because it's possible to participate in all the right things and still not be a worshiper, still not be a faithful pastor. Christian ministry, Christian fellowship, Christian worship, and its leadership is characterized by a self-conscious rejection of reliance on human achievement. Because we are here to boast in Christ Jesus and to worship in the Spirit of God. And so we come together and we say, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. That is who we are as the people of God. And as pastors, you must lead the way in being that. The true people of God are those who worship in the Spirit of God, who boast only in Christ Jesus, and who do not rely on human achievements. That is what the true people of God are. And how much more must you as elders and you, Cooper, lead by example in those three things? And so I encourage all of you to follow your leaders in this. And I encourage you leaders to remember that God has defined who we are as his people. He has given us his identity, the identity of Jesus Christ. And we are to live out that identity, not just as an organization of people with like-minded interests, but as worshipers of the true God, as those who boast in Jesus Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. Let's pray. Lord, we are gathered in Jesus' name and because of who he is and what he has done to worship you, to worship God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we're gathered with the special privilege this evening of commending one into this tremendous and fearful responsibility of shepherding your flock. I pray that you will work in all of our lives by your spirit to produce in us that which is pleasing to you as we worship you together, not just today and not just in a service, but together as your people as we live life, that Jesus would be our only boast 
and that the world would know that he is the one who binds us together and makes us who we are. And that we would live lives of utter dependence on you and your eternal provision in Christ as applied and lived out through our lives through your Holy Spirit. I pray for Cooper that you would that you would continually humble him by this task and that you would continue to grow in him the qualities of the kind of leader that you have called him and all of us to be as shepherds. We commit him to your care. We ask that you would bless his ministry as it is truly a Christian ministry. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.